You are listening to A Taste of Romumu, a Jcast Network podcast. For more information about Romumu, please visit romumu.org. For more information about the other Jcast Network podcasts and blogs, please visit jcastnetwork.org. So I'm going to sing a chant, um, and you guys are welcome to sing along if you can pick it up or, um, or just listen. Uh, this is a chant that we use uh, at the Kohanet program that I teach at Isabel Friedman, uh, for, specifically for Tisha B'Av. Um, and the words are, uh, stone by stone, tear by tear, we release and create right here. And, uh, and uh, what is gone we build upon. Stone by stone, tear by tear, we release and create right here. Stone by stone, tear by tear, we release and create right here. Stone by stone, tear by tear, we release and create right here. Stone by stone, tear by tear, we release and create right here. What is gone, we build upon. What is gone, we build upon. Create right here, stone by stone, tear by tear, we release and create right here. What is gone, we build upon. What is gone, we build. Encountering the Shechina as mourner, or as exile, or as refugee. So I began with the Tisha B'Av song because really all of this is connected to the story of Tisha B'Av and the story of the destruction of the temple. And this image of the Shechina as a mourner or a refugee really came into being uh, because of the Jewish people's relationship to the destruction of the temple twice, to the exile from the land of Israel. Uh, 
and it's a very important component in understanding who the Shekhinah is uh, in our uh, in our tradition. Um, and uh, so I am we I am imagining our sacred space as a, a place of memory uh, and of remembering what it means to mourn and what it means to remember uh, to be exiled and to be seeking home. Uh, so I would actually like to do names again because we only heard each other's names once, two times ago, and I'd love it if we uh, just uh, could uh, reintroduce ourselves. And if you brought an object for the altar, tell us when, you, when we come around to you. Um, so I'm Jill, um, and I brought two things. I brought a crystal that was a gift to me that looks like, today to me, it looks to me like a tear, a different... Uh, so uh, different, different days it looks different, but today it's the Shekhinah's tears. Um, and I also brought a stone from Jerusalem. Mm. I'm Jamie, and uh, if I knew that we were going to do that, I would have brought a piece of the synagogue from Lutzt, from oh, wow. Poland, that a friend brought back there, mm-hmm. because he brought it back there. Well, well, you can put its energy it's there. Yeah. <laughs> Um, Judith Okazuchi, depending on how you know me, and uh, that's my necklace. It's made out of uh, a cherry tree from my corner that uh, lost a limb, and uh, carved, sanded, and painted with amethyst. Mm. Mm. I'm Judy, but um, for an hour and a half I'll be Yehudi Bat Sarah Bat Ashe. I'm Amy Rosenthal. I'm Andrea. Maurice. I'm Arthur. I uh, just bring intentions. I'm Karen, and um, I don't know if anyone recognizes this, but this is a little puzzle piece um, that I think I got from one of our community gatherings um, when we talked about um, what piece are you that part of puzzle. So, um, I was just thinking that, Jill, you're bringing a, an important puzzle piece, you know, to bring mm. the Shekhinahs, mm. you know, to make her relevant. Mm. And I just feel like this is an important piece of our ancestry that has been lost for so long and that I feel like you're resurrecting and bringing her back and giving us a new understanding and hopefully meaning in our lives. So, um, very grateful. Thank you. She kept hitting me on the head until I did it. Her life learning, but I know had she been born 10 or 20 years later, 
she would have been a scholar. Mm -hmm. And as a woman of her time, she was primarily, you know, a wife and a mother and a grandma, and did not get to fully use her extraordinary intellectual capacities. And how blessed all of us are that we live at a time that as much as we want to use those capacities, we can. So uh, mm. the merit of this evening, for me, is in honor of my grandma. Mm. What's beautiful. Mm. I'm Howard. Mijanu. Mm. Another Yehudi. <laughs> I brought that white feather. Mm. Um, in April, when I was sitting Shiva, my mm. son Eli and I were walking our dog Rocco on a very gloomy, cloudy day. And all of a sudden, this ray of light, came, and we live in the woods, came through the trees in the woods, and this white feather dropped through that ray of light. Mm. And I, you know, it's like I couldn't have. Eli and I looked at each other like, did we really see that? <laughs> and so we picked up the feather, and uh, we actually hang it now near our mezuzah. Mm. And uh, mm. so I that here. Beautiful. Thank you. I'm Graham. Mm. Okay, welcome, everybody. Now, somehow, oh, there it is. Okay. Oh, and we're in. <laughs> it's actually very appropriate to our topic for today. <laughs> right. So I'm actually going to ask half the class to bear with me while I summarize last week's class for the other class, uh, other half, because a lot of you weren't there. Um, <laughs> and. Uh, <laughs> Is that the rewind button? <laughs> 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 oh my god! I kept being interrupted by the espresso maker. It was really funny. Um, so to summarize, you guys should go back and read the Book of Proverbs, and particularly chapter three and chapter eight. Uh, the Book of Proverbs is a book that we don't read liturgically, but it, meaning we don't read it in shul, but it is in the Bible. And parts of the book of Proverbs speak of a mysterious figure called Chochmah, or wisdom. And she's always described as a woman, and she is, uh, for example, the phrase that we chant in shul when we are putting the Torah back, um, she's a tree of life to those who hold her fast, and all who cleave to her you know, are, um, right, uh, are happy. Her ways are ways of pleasantness, and all her paths are peace. Didn't originally describe Torah. It originally described wisdom in the book of Proverbs. Like that is a quote from the book of Proverbs. It's Chaim Hilamachazikim Ba. She's a tree of life to those who hold on to her. Uh, described this mysterious figure called Chochmah. So in some places, Chochmah seems um, more like a platonic, like a Lady Liberty. You know, like she's female, but only sort of by courtesy. You know, it's really just an idea. There are other places in the book of Proverbs where she is described as being around when God created the world, being God's confidant, advisor, and kind of like foster child, like you know, being portrayed, for example, sitting and playing at God's feet. Uh, and this mysterious figure of wisdom comes to teach people about the good life and about what the, how they should live. Uh, she also is described as having a feast and maidens to go out to the town to invite those who are seeking wisdom to her feast. Uh, so we looked at those texts as a, a foreshadowing 
both actually, it's both, um, is backshadowing a word, backshadowing a word? Um, it's both um, derived from earlier mythic images in the ancient Near East and connected to later images of Torah and Shekhinah in Jewish tradition. So these images of wisdom probably, as I argued last week, reflect earlier figures of divine mothers who were advisors um, and maybe also human mothers who were political advisors to kings because we know that that was a, 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 a court role. The mother of the king had a particular role in his court uh, that involved an advisory capacity. Uh, so she might have represented human women, but also divine women like Asherah, who's also described as a tree. Um, and who's a divine mother, uh, but was sort of not exactly tamed, but at least sort of monotheized right into a, a sort of not deity, but some sort of companion figure to God who was created by God, but who still represented some sort of friend to God. Um, later Jewish sources will take this figure of wisdom and turn her into the Torah and also turn, like, a lot of the lines about her will be lifted to refer to Shekhinah later. Uh, so that figure in Proverbs is a very important transitional figure. So if you guys want to go back and read some of the stuff in the packet, you'll, uh, you know, you'll see a little bit about her. Um, so I'm now, so that, the book of Proverbs is written, you know, you know, maybe, I don't know, 200 BCE, 300 BCE, you know, something like in there, maybe even earlier. Uh, I'm now going to jump about 500 years. Uh, and I'm going to jump to a pretty early time in the development of, of rabbinic Judaism, meaning the Judaism that existed after the Mishnah. So I'm going to fast forward through the destruction of the Second Temple, um, the uh, right in 70 CE, the period of immense trauma and confusion following that. Um, the sense of first of all, many many of Jews were killed at that time. I mean, we probably lost. I mean, it would have been. Of course, it was not as many people because we're talking about a much smaller population. But it would have been as devastating to them as the Holocaust was to us. Like it was a huge percentage of the population was wiped out by the Romans after the rebellion against Rome. Uh, and Jews were driven away from the center of the land of Israel and really from the land of Israel entirely. Many of them were brought as captives to other countries, particularly to Rome. Uh, and there was, uh, it was similar in its upheaval to the destruction of the first temple and the exile of the Jews to Babylonia. So essentially Judaism had to again reconstitute itself. In the same way, those of you who were there last week, I talked about sort of the crystallization of a, of a, a strongly monotheist culture that was very text-based, in some ways being a response to the first exile, right? And to the leaving of the land where folk culture was the norm and you know, taking your culture to a land where it had to be portable and it had to really bind the community together because there were so many forces against keeping the community together. So in similar ways, you know, several, you know, hundreds of years later, uh, the community has to reconstitute. It doesn't have a temple anymore. Right? The priesthood, who has been more or less the spiritual leadership, is in disarray. Um, and synagogue life, which has already begun, uh, really needs to take over as the center of Jewish life. The leaving of temple culture later in Judaism almost becomes perceived as a good thing. 
you know, we were giving sacrifices, or, you know, maybe that wasn't the most, you know, evolved form of worship, you know, now we have prayer, that's a lot better, you know, we used to have priests who got their job in a hereditary way, now we have rabbis, they at least supposedly get their job through their intellect, you know, maybe that's better. Um, so, you know, Maimonides almost says, you know, it was a stage, and then we didn't need it anymore. But at the time, it was a vast trauma. And some of the early rabbinic texts, you really see how traumatic it was. And the texts that we're going to look at tonight um, are texts in which um, the exile, the, the, the destruction of the temple is described. Um, and some of them we'll read and some of them I'll tell you about. I didn't actually bring the Book of Lamentations, which would have been a good, a good thing to look at. Um, which was written after the destruction of the first temple. But the, begin, the, the way that the Shrina, which in our first class we learned, you know, was not really personified, but more of a sort of hovering presence, uh, it begins to be depicted as the chief mourner for the destruction of the temple. Right? And her expulsion from the temple becomes the poetic image for the people's expulsion right, from the temple, from the center of their worship, and from their land. Uh, so that's what we're going to be talking about tonight. But before we dive into text, I would like to know, how many of you have a, uh, an emigrant or refugee in the last two, three, last three generations of your family? Yeah, I figured three was going to make it just about all of you. Yeah. All right, so the American Jewish community, right, we, you know, we know about refugee, right? We know about, like, uh, we know about refugee from Europe. We know about emigration for reasons of oppression or because, right, there wasn't enough to eat. Uh, this is in a lot of our family. Who didn't raise their hand? Did anybody not raise their hand? Okay, wow. How long have you been here? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, my great, I think my great-grandparents. Okay, so maybe fourth generation. Uh, so this is actually, uh, and one of the poems we'll read tonight is um, by my dear teacher, Alicia Ostreicher, and she connects uh, the experience of uh, the Shechina in exile to the Shechina's greenhorn, you know, like coming to, to this land. Um, so it's really shaped us also. Um, and, you know, some of you may remember, um, certainly I remember in my family there was food hoarding. I mean, there were all kinds of behaviors that go along with being you know, refugees, you always had to have your passport, right? Your, your, your passport could never get out of date, you know, like that was the rule in my family. Um, so I, uh, I resonate with, uh, with the Shechina as exile. All right, so let's take a look so we can start talking together about this. Are we in packet one? We are in packet one. Um, and where... Here we are. Okay. All right, so we're going to start on page 31. This is actually even a little bit before the text about the Shechina that I want to look at with you, but it's similar. It's from Pesikta Rabati, which is a rabbinic collection of midrashim, of legends. Um, it's early, so it would have been like just post the time of the Mishnah, like maybe 300 CE or some 400 CE, something like that. Um, and it's, uh, this midrash is told in the voice of Jeremiah the prophet. It's Jeremiah the prophet who is speaking. Um, 
And this is one of the earliest texts where we get this mysterious mourning figure. Um, this is, this is not from the book of Jeremiah, and it's not from the book of Lamentations. This is a midrash on the book of, of uh, this is a midrash on the book of, uh, of Jeremiah. Okay, does somebody want to read a little bit? It's okay if you cry. <laughs> okay, Jay. Jeremiah said, while going up to Jerusalem, I lifted up my eyes and saw a woman sitting on the top of a mountain, clothed in black garments, her hair disheveled. She was crying and asking who would comfort her. And I was crying and asking who would comfort me. I came close to her and said, if you are a woman, speak to me. If you are a spirit, depart from me. She replied, don't you know me? I am the one who had seven children. Their father went away to a city across the sea. A messenger came and said to me, your husband died in the city across the sea. While I went weeping for him, another messenger came and said to me, the house fell on your seven children and killed them. Now I do not know for whom I should weep and for whom I should dishevel my hair. I said, you are not better than my mother Zion, and yet she has become pasture for the beasts of the field. She said, I am your mother Zion. I am the mother of the seven, for so it is written. She who has borne seven is forlorn. Okay, so actually let's stop with that chunk for now. Well, moving, yeah. Yeah. So uh, we can actually read this in a number of different ways, what's happening here. Um, so Jeremiah is going to Jerusalem, and presumably he's going to Jerusalem post-destruction of the first temple, right? He's, uh, he's going to, to mourn, right, for the, for the city. Um, and he sees, and notice it's on the top of a mountain, right? So that reminds us of what? Yep. Okay. So, right, certainly of Sinai, right? So there's, right, there, there's Revelation. Um, might also remind us maybe of, hmm? Shrines in general. Right, lots, right. Lots of important things happen on mountains. Yes. Right. Mountains are, are, right, heaven's earth meeting place, right? The Akedah. Right, the Akedah, absolutely the Akedah. Mm -hmm. um, the binding of Isaac, right, where Isaac is uh, being bound on the mountain. Also the mountain of Zion, right, the, the mountain of the temple, right? So, uh, so that's important. And, and Jesus, his sermon on the mount. True. Yeah. <laughs> and she, and, and tell me about her appearance. How do, like, what do we first notice about her? She's disheveled. She's yeah. in mourning. She's yes. wearing black. She's... Right. Right, she's in mourning, right? And disheveled hair here is, a, is an official sign of mourning, right? She's taken off her head. Women would have had you no know, beautiful headdresses, right? She's taken off her head covering, right? That's a, it's an official sign of mourning to dishevel your hair. Um, and I love this, right? She's crying and asking who's going to comfort her, and he's crying and asking who's going to comfort me, right? So they're, so they're actually, it's like, it's actually a very poignant image. It's like two people who are in Shiva and they meet one another, right? And, you know, what do they say? You know, one of them wants comfort and the other one wants comfort. You know, it's, it's, a, very, uh, it's a very poignant image. Um, and he's, then he says this thing to her about the woman and the spirit. So what do you guys make of that? What, what does he think about her? Are you a woman or a spirit? Okay, so what, why is he asking that? 
Like what 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 makes you what right. might be Why in his mind? It? Why I, I think you know I think it is a sign of some, you know negative forces that he doesn't want to have anything to do with like negative. I don't know if it's the devil, but like. Whatever that. So he might be worried that this is a demonic spirit. Like he might actually be worried there's something dangerous about this woman. He is he's anxious about it. Yeah. Signs of intense grief is of hallucination. He may hear voices of a loved one, see, and I'm wondering if he's in such deep that he may be at that state of, of that kind of. Thing. So he's not sure what world he's in. Right, he feels like maybe he's crossed into the other world here. He maybe he's seeing a ghost. Right, he doesn't know what he's seeing, but he has the sense that he's not absolutely sure that this is a person. Right, and so and uh, the, the, this line actually appears in other midrashim that are similar. Um, so he says to her, "If you're a person, I, okay, talk to me. And if you're a spirit, you know, I banish you." Right, he's he's worried about this, huh? Kesikta Rabati, I think the day would have been maybe 400 CE, something like that. Why do you ask? Um, that like uh, spirits were part of the common belief system. Oh yes, very much so. Yeah, um, he right. The, the, there is a lot in the Talmud about what you do if you're going to the bathroom in a ruin and you run into a demon. I mean, there's like all you know, there's all <laughs> kinds of stuff. I mean, it's absolutely part of the belief system. Spirit or the spirit yeah. have anything to do with the destruction of the temple? I mean, mm -hmm. is he connecting the destruction mm -hmm. of the temple and this spirit is hovering around? Right. So there's a, a destructive. So that's really interesting. So maybe, and it's interesting, it's almost like blaming the victim, right? It's like maybe he identifies her with the destruction. So maybe he sees her as some sort of personification of the destruction, in which case he wants to get away from her, right? He's afraid of her. Maybe this, you know, the, the, um, Depth of her weeping, you know, is in some way connected to the destruction, the, the forces of destruction, right, in the area. So you get the sense that there's something eerie about the, the ruined temple, you know, that uh, it could be a place where you would meet something not so good. So when I read this, I thought about the prototypic Adam and Eve figure in the first creation story. Mm -hmm. And I thought maybe he's asking, looking, almost like looking at a mirror, Hmm. And saying, who is this person in mourning? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it's me. Great. So if you read it sort of in a psychological way, right, she is the reflection of his own grief. Right? And so she's, I mean, if we want to read it that way, she is a spirit in a sense, right? She's a reflection of what's happening inside him, which is almost, I think, what she tells him. So she then tells him a story which turns out to be a parable. She also right? says, don't you recognize me? Yes. I thought it was interesting, like, Hey, wait. You're supposed to know who I am, mm -hmm. in a way. Yeah. I that was really... It is very interesting, right? That there is, in, in a way, I find it telling about the Shrina also, that this is a figure that we keep forgetting, you know, and that, you know, she keeps returning to us. You know, so it, it is actually quite striking that her first, the first thing she says is, don't you know me? Mm -hmm. Right? As if, right, you should actually know who I am, right? It's because uh, you've forgotten me that you don't know who I am. Um, and she tells this story, which is a terrible story. It's almost like a, it's like a, a version of the book of Job, right? Um, right. Her husband dies, and he's not even in her city, or she can't even bury him. And then uh, the, the, uh, she goes to mourn for him, and meanwhile the house falls on her children. So she's actually depicting sort of the worst kind of mourning, right? She's depicting, like, 
the, the biggest tragedy, right? She's lost everyone. She has no one. Um, and, uh, right, this has all happened in ra uh, rapid succession. And she says, I don't know for whom I should weep. But it's not only right. that it happened. Yeah. It happened in a way because she left them. Right. You know what I mean? In other yeah. words, like, if she hadn't left, I feel like there might be some guilt well, there. Well, also, if she hadn't left, she would have been in the house, right? Then it, the house would have fallen on her, too. Right. too. I think mm -hmm. so like there is mother, some... something happens when you leave your kids, you always feel like, oh, my God, what I, I shouldn't have left. I, I could have been there. I could have done something. Right. So there's survivor <laughs> guilt here also. There's guilt. There's guilt, right, now, Judy? Itself, isn't that the one that has Rachel weeping for her children? Yes, absolutely. Right, the the phrase that we read it on Rosh Hashanah, right? The the vo right, the voice of Rachel is heard in Ramah, bitter weeping, uh, right, for children who are no more, and God says to her, you know, I'm, I'm going to comfort you. I'm going to bring your children back to your land. Both of these figures, by the way, are I, I talked about this briefly before. I'm talking about the image of the weeping woman in the ancient Near East, right? The really the weeping goddess, right? The woman who weeps over the one who has died, and in a lot of myths, right, not explicitly in Jewish myth, but in a lot of, but except later in Kabbalah, but in a lot of myths, right, it's her weeping that, that causes the resurrection to happen. Right? In the story of Inanna, it's because Geshtinana, the sister of Dumuzi, weeps over him that he's brought back to life. In the story of Isis and Osiris, it's Isis is weeping over Osiris, and he comes back to life. So there's something about these tears, it's almost like rain. Right, it's um, it's almost like the image of rain and the image of tears have come together in some way. That the tears are, you know, are life giving. So, I feel like that hasn't been forgotten from Jewish lore here. That her weeping, right, that in in some way, and especially later as Kabbalah begins to develop, in some way the weeping of the Shekhinah, like that earliest mythic weeping, is seen as a sign. It's like a recurring icon. Yeah, that, that there is going to be rebirth, right? There is going to, that in some way her weeping represents the, the terrible loss, but there's also some, because there's memory, right, there can be some sort of tikkun, right? There can be repair. Um, so, so, so the figure here is, is so consonant with other, sort of other stories and other myths of the time. Um, so what is he saying here when he says, you're not better than my mother Zion? Well, he recognized the, 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 the parallel. Yeah, it's, it's a funny way that he's expressing himself. But he means something like, you were equal to my mother Zion. Or, right? Um, well, she's still a human. Well, she's like a woman. Yes, he know? sees her as a human being. Yeah. But he's saying my mother Zion is is nothing. Well, it's just the ground that was there. Right. He says in a way like it's even worse for her. Yeah. She's lost more than you have, right? She's lost everybody, and right now she's nobody lives on her, right? You've lost you, you know your family, and she's lost everyone, right? No. It, so do you do you feel like this is you know you have to go into your refugee self for this, but like do you feel like the, the mourning of the land itself? The land has lost its people, right? There's no one left to farm the land. There's no one left to sing it the songs that it knows. There's no one left to, you know, to honor the places in it that are sacred. It's, they're all gone. You know, to, to feel the, the mourning of the land, uh, that's really the, the, the image that's being struck here. 
So he says to her, he, basically he says, my mother's Zion is even worse off than you. And she says, right, I'm your mother's Zion. So she actually has, has taken his image in his head right, of Zion mourning. And now it's a, now it's a person. Right? Now it's become very, very real and very solid. Right? He sees her as a woman. Right? So you can call that a hallucination, you can call it a visitation, right? you can call that a metaphor, you can call it whatever you want. But he, from his sense of Zion's mourning right, arises this image of a person, right, of this widowed woman who has lost all her children. So Jeremiah um, then delivers her a Dvar Torah. I don't know if she likes this Dvar Torah, but he basically uh, he, he says something to her. So let's read what he says to her. Something else, maybe. Well, let's make. Let's maybe have somebody who's easy. Yeah. Okay. Thanks, Judy. Your misfortune is like the misfortune of Job. Mm-hmm. Job's sons and daughters were taken from him, and yours were taken from you. Quote, I took away from Job his silver and gold, and from you I took away your silver and gold. I cast Job on the dunghill, and you too I made into a dunghill. And just as I returned and comforted Job, so will I return and comfort you. I doubled Job's sons and daughters, and your sons and daughters I will double also. I doubled Job's silver and gold, and I will do that for you too. I stripped Job from the dunghill, and concerning you is written, Arise from the dunghill, arise and dwell, Jerusalem. A mortal of flesh and blood built you, a mortal of flesh and blood destroyed you. But in the future I will build you up, for it is written, God builds Jerusalem and gathers together the dispersed of Israel. Okay. <laughs> well, let's so let's think about like why. So why is this in the midrash, right? Why does Jeremiah respond to her in this way? You might say this is not very good pastoral care, but he is doing something important, right? So what is he trying to like? Why is this here? Right, so, he, so the message is, right, if you, right, you are in exile because of these terrible things that have befallen you at the hands of human beings. But God can heal even this, right? You know, whether you want to buy that in that moment, right, that's up to you. But, right, Jeremiah's message is, right, God can heal this, right? God can create tikkun. God can, God will bring you back. And not only bring you back, but right. sevenfold. Right, right. You'll, you'll be... Blessed infinitely. It's not right. that different than how you would comfort a friend and say, you know, you think this is bad? Let me tell you a really bad story. <laughs> and then, okay, that's Job, right? Job is like the worst right, story. Right. And then, and you know how Job got comforted? So right. you will. You know how Job got back? You know, right. so will you. Right. So it's it's not that different than a real, um, it's what we tell people not to do in the make a shiver call. But we know plenty of people who do that. You got cancer? Let me tell you. It's like one of the 
can also normalize yourself. Right, mm -hmm. right. Mm -hmm. It's saying that others have been here also with you, and they've suffered also with you, and, and then there's always tomorrow, there's always hope, there's always something that will get better. Hmm. Yeah. The thing that I have trouble with is in Job and in this one, it's like as if, you know, you he kills all these children, got, got on, a, on a lark, and then, well, you had seven daughters, just say you had six daughters, now here's six more daughters, like it, like it, you can just replace them. <laughs> yeah. so, right. This I don't think is personal, I mean, I don't think it's right. like, it's more metaphorical. Mm. What's important about this passage is to understand that this movement from exile to redemption is going to be like the fundamental engine for Jewish belief for a really long time afterward. Like this is really important. Like this sense of we went into exile, right? Our relationship with God was broken and it's going to be repaired and we're going to be healed, right? That sticks in all kinds of different ways, right? Our liturgy refers to it, our philosophy refers to it. And the Kabbalah goes, like, really, you know, far with this idea because basically it takes this idea from a national idea, right? We were, as a nation, we were destroyed, and as a nation, we're going to be healed, and makes it into a cosmic idea, right? The universe is broken, and one day God will repair it. Right, so they really take this idea and they make it a cosmic idea. And Mother Zion becomes Shekhinah. Shekhinah becomes the separation of Shekhinah and the, her exile in the world becomes the image of brokenness. And her reunification with her divine husband right, becomes the marital metaphor for the healing of the universe. Right, when that relationship is repaired, then everything will be repaired. Uh, and we'll see more of this as we begin to read the Kabbalistic sources. Uh, so this idea of divorce and marriage, here it's a, she's a widow. Right? In the other texts, she's been divorced. Right? The idea of the remarriage of the Shekhinah becomes a fundamental, you know, God will bring it all back. Right? God will fix everything. Yeah, sure. Going back a bit, when she says she, um, I'm sorry, I'm blocking here, but when she left, to go mourn her husband and her children died. Is there any metaphor with that, like that, 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 that the Jews abandoned something or they went to go focus on something else and then something No, it, it's, not the, it's not the fundamental metaphor. The, the, the way that Jews usually understand it, which is similar but I think not exactly the same, is in most philosophies it's like, well, we sinned, right, and then God abandoned us. But the Shekhinah stayed with us because she really likes us, right? But the, the transcendent part of God sort of took off because we were, you know, we were too difficult. But she's the one who stayed with us. Uh, so that the metaphor about the children is, doesn't quite follow through all the sources. Um, what ends up happening is that there's sort of a split, which is what we're going to see in the next text, between God who leaves and goes up to the highest heavens and this other part of God that stays with us. Um, and is portrayed as sort of a divorced woman whose children have fallen out of favor and who's like been sort of you know put out into the you know into the world. Um, in the first temple, the sin is usually understood to be idolatry, right? We worshipped other gods, and that's why we were kicked out. In the second temple, the sin is considered to be sinachinam, right? Which means a baseless hatred. Like, we hated one another for all kinds of stupid things, right? We hated one another for wearing different kinds of talasim or because he didn't invite me to a party or because, like, you know, we had different political opinions, you know, and uh, the Talmud 
attributes the destruction of the Second Temple to this sort of petty hatred of one another. When we should have been uniting against the Romans, and instead we were fighting with one another over, you know, over foolish things. And that's why the temple was destroyed. So there tends to be this narrative of sin and withdrawal of God, right? And then ultimate forgiveness after we repent. Um, but you'll see in the next, uh, in, in the next text what, uh, what this looks like. So this is on your page 32. Or if you want to look in the Hebrew, it's on page 33. The, the Shrina made three journeys. Uh, she made ten journeys. And um, what, what we're, we're in the middle of here is... Um, la, oh, all right, so let me tell you about this text. This text is called Lamentations Rabbah, Echa Rabbah. It's a Midrashic text. That means it's from the rabbinic period. It's also quite early, so also I would say something like the third century CE, um, maybe a little later. Um, and it is a very long discourse on the Book of Lamentations, and it tells a lot of stories that at least are ostensibly from the time of the destruction of the Second Temple. So it tells, for example, about this very, just to give you an example of the over-the-top uh, drama of this book, uh, for example, uh, there's uh, two, two children of the priestly line, I think they're both children of the high priest, and they're they're taken and they're, all their finery is taken away and they're sold into slavery and eventually like their owners make them marry each other and then they figure out who the other one is and then they, they you know, die of grief. I mean, it's these awful, awful stories. It's, um, so part of what you will see in, Lament in, in Lamentations Rabbah is um, the des description of the Shrina as being chased into exile. That while the, there's a lot of stories about what's happening as the temple is being destroyed. You know, the Romans are coming in the gate and the priests are running to throw the keys of the temple up in the air and give them back to God so that the Romans won't have them. And, you know, the, this kind of, you know, dr dramatic uh, entry of the Romans. And this is a description of where, how the Shechina is running away, right? As the temple is being defiled and destroyed and burned down, this is what the Shechina is doing. So I want you to remember in your head what the Shechina image was like two sessions ago. Remember, Shechina dwells in a place where there's Torah study, right? She dwells in a place where there's right, wow. prayer. And now you're going to see it, a different image of what she looks like. Um, and I should say that um, interspersed in the story are these proof texts, because the way the Midrashic genre works is that there are, they always will give you a text that sort of proves, not really, but sort of proves what they're saying. Um, Okay, so somebody who hasn't read who doesn't mind reading. Anybody? I can read if you're all too tired. Marlene. Thank you, Marlene. They built a meeting place for um, hold on. Uh, 32 oh, on the left side, 10 journeys. Okay. Yeah, there you go. 10 journeys were made by the, by the Shekinah from Cherub to Cherub. From the Cherub to the threshold of the house, from the, from the threshold of the house to the Cherubim. From the Cherubim to the east gate, from the court to the roof, from the roof to the altar, from the altar to the wall, and from the wall to the city of Jerusalem, and from the city to the Mount of Olives. Okay, actually, let's stop there before, before we do the proof text. So I, I just want to get the force of this. So we just talked about the cherubim, right? So where does the Shrina live? Between the she lives 
between the cherubim. So what is happening? Like, picture this. You're, you're the film director. It's like a, what does this look like? Trying to transmit messages to each other? It's not messages exactly. Um, it says ten journeys were made by the uh, Shechina. So what is she doing? What is the Shechina doing? Point the camera back here and facing the end. Absolutely. Yep, right. She is, right, as she moves outward, the camera moves outward, right? We're seeing the, the temple get bigger. But think about, think about the Shechina as refugee. So instead of one departure of the Shechina from the temple, they're filming it a little bit differently. She's, it's like in those movies where someone is like hiding, you know, behind the door and then behind the, you know, behind the tree and then, right? She goes from one cherub to the other. So imagine like the forces of unholiness are chasing her. So she's moving from one cherub to the other cherub. And then she can't stay there anymore. So she moves to the, the threshold of the door. And then that doesn't work anymore. So she moves to the, um, back to the cherubim. And then she goes to the east gates. And then she goes to the court, which is the enclosed space in the middle. And then she goes to the roof. And then she jumps back to the altar. Right? So it's as if like this, this cloud, this presence, this, or, or this woman, depending on how we're envisioning her, right, is being chased right, either by the invading Romans or by the encroaching impurity in the temple. <laughs> right? she's being, and she's trying to find a spot where she can stay. Right? But she's being chased away. Um, from the roof. Yes. Yes, especially since she keeps doubling back. Right. So, what does that imply to you? Like, what's the emotional force of that? Yeah, she's just desperate. Right. Yeah. 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 I thought she was blessing this area. She's blessing that area. No. 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 She is. She is fleeing. She's fleeing. She doesn't want to go. Right. She was. Ten journeys. You know. Ten yeah. is a whole number, right? Yeah. Ten means like it's complete. Right, right. So it's almost like she's... Yeah, I think it's ironic. It's like the Ten Commandments, only they're being reversed, right? Or it's like the Ten Trials of Abraham, right? It's like, it's, it's, it's the undoing, right, of, of the Ten Commandments or of the Ten Strips of Fabric on the Mishkan, right? It, it's, it's, the un, it's the undoing of all that. Uh, I don't know, third century CE, something like that. Not probably, not in the living memory of the destruction, but maybe like their grandparents might actually have seen the destruction, right? Something like that, maybe. Yeah, something like that. Uh, so, right, this would have been written by people who didn't see it themselves, but they might have known living ancestors who did. <coughs> You know, or it wouldn't have been that far away in terms of a in terms of historical memory. Um, and it's very moving, right? And eventually, she gets chased out of the building. Um, she goes from the altar to the city, where she goes. She actually rests on the city, and then she goes to the Mount of Olives, and that's very poignant because the Mount of Olives is the cemetery. So she's actually being chased from the realm of purity, where actually you can't bring any dead people, right? And she's bring, she's being chased to the cemetery. So you see the the transition from her as the central, almost like you know, vestal, right, hearth keeping presence. Right now she is. Right now she's sitting in the graveyard. She goes from where the Kohanim live and work to where they can't live. Yes. 
Exactly. So it's like, it's like the undoing of everything that's supposed to be. Right? She's, she's at once moving from being tended by the priests to being in a space of, you know, where the priest can't so even be. Yeah, this was the generation that wrote about it poetically. Like probably the first generation didn't even write about it. You know, that was just too hard. Like they were trying to, you know, keep themselves together. Karen, did you have something? No, no just... I'm just relating to exactly the generations. The survivors can't even talk about it, let alone write about it. Yeah. They can't bring it to any context. Yeah. Yeah. Her daughter used to write Holocaust poetry. Huh. <laughs> I don't know what time it is. I did something to my phone. Okay, great. Okay. So now we're going to look at a particular kind of um, kind of story that's called a parable in the shell. It starts um, about three-quarters of the way down the page where it says, uh, Rabbi Acha said, do you guys see that? The Shekhinah may be likened to a king. You see that? Okay. Um, Do you want to read? Is that okay? That would be great. Rabbi Acha said, The Shekhinah may be likened to a king who left his palace in anger. After going out, he came back and embraced kissed the walls of the palace and its pillars, weeping and exclaiming, Oh, the peace of my palace. Oh, the peace of my royal residence. Oh, the peace of my beloved house. Oh, peace from now onward. Let there be peace. Similarly, when the Shekhinah went forth from the temple, it returned and embraced and kissed its walls and pillars and wept and said, Oh, the peace of the temple. Oh, the peace of my royal residence. Oh, the peace of my beloved house. So this is one of the ones you can't really read in English. So I'm going to read. I'm going to read you the Hebrew, and you're going to get why. You're going to understand why. Um, so Rabbi Amar Rabbi Acha Lamelech, or the king, Shayayotze mi Palatin Shelo, who Bekaas, who went out of his palace in anger, Misha Hayayotze Hayachuzer. After he went out, he came back. And he kissed and hugged the walls and the columns of the palace and cried, Heve shalom, Beit Palatin Shili. Heve shalom, Beit Malchuti. Heve shalom, Beit Yikari. Heve shalom, Mikadun Heve shalom. So do you hear it in the Hebrew, that you, what you can't hear in the English, which is what's the other meaning of shalom? Like, goodbye. Right, goodbye, goodbye, my temple, goodbye, my palace. Right, it's so. I mean, I'm crying. It's so powerful. Right, they're imagining the Shekhinah, right, as the right, the owner of the palace, who's saying, right, and she's saying peace upon you. But what she's also saying is goodbye. You know, um, you know, goodbye, my kingdom, goodbye, my my beloved house, goodbye. Um, 
and uh, and it says um, right, and that's what the shechina did. When the shechina went out of the Beit Nidash, out of the temple. She she went back and hugged and kissed the the walls of the of the temple and the pillars of the temple and cried and said, "Have shalom goodbye my temple, have shalom goodbye my palace." Um, I can't read the rest because I'm going to cry. Um, um, she says, "Have shalom min hakruvim." Right? She uh, she says goodbye to the cherubim. It's so moving. Um, different image from the transcendent image we have where Solomon says to God I'm building you this temple but you know the heaven of heavens cannot contain you how much less this house that I have built right God doesn't need a temple why we need a temple that God doesn't need a temple but here this is a totally different image you know God needs the temple right she misses the temple I mean here right God is the Shekhinah the Shekhinah misses the temple right she is devastated to lose it um, and here she really kind of takes both because she's the king also, right? So it's, it's, she, it's both, it's, you know, multiple faces of God being presented here. Uh, you know, the king is saying goodbye my palace and she's saying goodbye my temple. You know, it's, um, so. More personal. It, yeah, it, I think so, but, but more, right, more personal in the sense that God is more like a person here? No, more the loss mm-hmm. is personal. Yeah. It's not. You know, right. it's, it's not helpful. Yeah. Yeah. It's the not way, abstract. The way you say goodbye is yeah. much more personal. Yeah, yeah. See, if we looked at it like we, if we, from our perspective, it'd be uh, if you say you're God's like God part of yourself, mm. and you're God part of yourself, leaving those places, mm. leaving those rituals, mm. leaving those things that mm. really make you. Mm. I think that's why it hurts. Mm. So that's that's really that's really touching me. If we imagine what it would mean, right, to have to leave, right, the things that we hold sacred, right, and to say goodbye to them and to be unable to return to them, you know, what would that mean? Like, who would we be after that? You know, the, the community had like a psychotic identity crisis. I mean, they just didn't know what to do. It was unbelievably devastating. And yeah, go ahead. But the thing, like, I guess it's also the the temple was the place where we worship, but we're still identified as Jews. So that no matter where we go, we're still carrying our, our faith, our Judaism with us. The, you can say that because they figured no. out how you <laughs> could say that. Right. Exactly. Right? Because no. they figured out that this was the only way to go. go. Right. That they were going to have to figure out how to put the temple inside. Right? right? And they were going to have to figure out how to take this thing that had been a central place on the land that they went to. They were going to have to figure out how to put it inside. But before it was that, right. it was the Mishkan. It was moving. Right, right. But it was still a thing. It was. Still it was still a thing. thing. We moved out of the gym. <laughs> Honestly, everything. I was just going like, to say that, that psychosis it was, it was so hard started, for this community yeah. to move out of that gym. That same psychosis started then <laughs> 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 and just continues. I mean, through the yeah. history, that's. 
same psychosis. Right. It's just a galgal. -gal. It's just a circle. Yeah. That continues over. It's like Anatevka, right? You know, when Tevye is leaving Anatevka, and we're all weeping, right? Because we know what that is. Like, we know what that means. Um, and Jewish mysticism really began as a direct attempt to figure out how the temple could be inside you. Like, the beginning of Jewish mysticism is architecture. Like, the earliest books of Jewish mysticism are about structures. They're about palaces and chariots. Sefer Yetzirah, which is one of the earliest books of Jewish mysticism, is about the alphabet, about the alphabet. But it's about how if you visualize the different forces of up and down and east and west and water and air, and if you visualize them all in the right place, then you'll be in the temple. That's really the point of Sefer Yetzirah, is that you can, you, through meditation, right, through concentration, you can create the temple around you. So can you see why they did that? Like, it was never going to happen to them again, right? They were never going to build another building that a human being could come along and knock down. Right? They were going to figure out another way. This is, very, this is very Eastern in terms of practicing, you know, people meditating and the whole... Well... I mean, I'm not saying... <coughs> The sense that I would say that I, I would I would say that is different. The, the practices are different. I mean, sorry, the practices are similar. The way that I would say that it's really quite different is that there's a pretty big focus in the East on non-attachment. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. I would say that Jewish mysticism doesn't even know from non-attachment. I mean, it's, <laughs> you know, it's it's kind of not true because there is this later Hasidic idea of yeah, of which means letting go of the ego. I mean, so that is actually quite similar to the East. But the sense of there was wholeness, we're going to get back there, you know, I think is different for me from how I understand, for example, a Buddhist mindset, right, where you're really trying to let go of your attachment to wholeness, right? right? That's really not what the Kabbalah is about. The Kabbalah really wants you to be attached to wholeness. Right? They want you to sort of bring that desire into the, into the meditative work that you do. Um, so there are similarities and differences. It's not all one thing. Um, but, but yeah, I would have to say that particularly in the time period that I'm talking about, maybe later in the like, Hasidic thought you get something that's closer to the Buddhist philosophy. But particularly the time period I'm talking about, mysticism was all about attachments. It was like, I have to attach myself to the divine throne because that is the only thing that cannot be taken away from me. Right? If I can be attached to God's reality, right, then I will be okay no matter where they send me. Right? So they needed a portable God. And one of the things that happened was that this figure of the Shekhinah being chased out of the temple became the figure who went with them. Right? That no matter where they were, she would go with them. Right? And because she was there, ultimately, the Holy One of Blessing would be there too, because how could he really abandon her? Right? So... They had to, and so they, they almost like, I mean, if I were going to be, you know, Freudian about this, I would say it was almost like, a, like they split God. It was like a split personality because they felt the sense of God withdrawing, but they also had to have the sense of God being close. So they sort of split it, you know, and uh, they really ended up with, as, as much as monotheism could do this, they ended up with a, a dual God figure, right? One who was in some way transcending all this, and one who was actually living all this with us, right? Yeah, yeah. I don't think I could possibly appreciate how the people at the time felt during the disruption. 
to be attached to one place and one center and I don't, you know, I think that if everything happened in that place and everything that was considered holy was there and it wasn't how we understand today, I think that I can appreciate that the destruction of that building was absolutely devastating to them as a nation and as yeah. a people. Right. Um, way beyond, I think, my experience. Yeah. yeah. That's why you wouldn't have written this. It would have been your next generation I wrote it because you were devastated. You were, you know, overcome with grief and it was only somebody else in survival, you know, that somebody said, look, you know, we got to pick ourselves up, otherwise we're doomed. This is the next step in evolution. You know, we got to regroup it and put the pieces survival. in a puzzle right. back to, yeah. There's um, the, the, in 132, or where was it, the Bar Rebellion, where the Romans came in and, like, leveled the city and changed its name, and it right. was, so... That has to add on to Oh, yes. Yeah, thank you, Judy. In a way, I was conflating those two events, but there was, after the destruction, there was a rebellion that really, the, the Romans came in and wiped people out. Like, and, like, we we're lucky we're still that's here. I mean, it really... Written, yeah, that's true. That's, that's absolutely true, Judy. That's correct. But I wanted to say one more thing about what Maurice said, which is that they had to re-find hope. Right? They had to re-find hope. And they weren't rebuilding the temple anytime soon. You know, I mean, the Roman Empire wasn't going anywhere. And, you know, the, you know, the, the idea of rebuilding, the, it wasn't going to happen. They had to find hope elsewhere. So they really began, you know, this much more portable, right? They, they invested in the Torah and Torah study. In some ways, Torah became the sacred center, right? And that you could take anywhere, right? Um, the, when you read the Mishnah, what are they doing? They're memorizing their, the, their customs. They're memorizing the halakha, right? They're arguing about it. They're, create, they're, they're investing in their culture, right? They're investing in their practice. Um, they're uh, talking about prayer life, right? About prayer as a substitute for sacrifice, right? They were already beginning to develop, like, a new culture in response to this that was going to give them, you know, a new way of, of being. But we need to get back to the shkina. Hold on one second. But, you know, we have to know about these things. It's very important. Um, yes, okay. Ah, I want to look at this, but let me see if I can find the English. Okay. Here we are. This is actually, this is really touching, but it also talks about the Shekhinah uh, in exile. So the English is on page 37 on the right side of the page. This is a, a, midra, a quote um, from Lamentations. Her young children, her olaleha, are gone into captivity before the adversary. Rabbi Yehuda said, come and see how beloved are children by the Holy One of Blessing. The Holy One, blessed be he. The Sanhedrin was exiled, but the Shekhinah did not go into exile with him, meaning right the, court, right the court of the most prestigious judges was exiled, but the Shekhinah stayed put. Um, the priestly watches were exiled, but the Shekhinah did not go into exile with them, right? meaning right, all the priests of the temple were exiled, but she still didn't leave. But when, the, when however, the children were exiled, the Shekhinah went into exile with them. Right? So that really... Um, enrolls her as mother, 
right? That her primary function is not sort of the, the political representation of the nation, but she's become the mother, right? She's, but she's, the, she's the comforting mother. Um, and that, um, you know, and that is the role that she, she stays with, right? That when the Kabbalah picks her back up, right, that is one of the, that's one of the forms that she takes. So I want to read a poem with you, and then I want to do a little meditating before we close. So this is a modern poem by Alicia Ostreicher, who was actually with us for the, at Romamu for the High Holidays. Uh, she's a very, very well-known poet and critic and midrashist and fabulous all-around um, artist and scholar. And she wrote this poem called The Shlina as Exile. And uh, I thought you guys might like this. Does anybody feel like reading it? You can read it if Oh, thank you, Arthur. Page 39. When the temple fell, when Jerusalem arose and fell, and whenever we were persecuted and scattered by the nations, to follow us in pain and exile, you folded wings, patched coats, survived working, praying, giving birth, dragged mattresses, hands and peasant carts, swam across hard seas, sick and homesick, landed in the golden land. They called you Greenhorn. You danced in cafes, you went in the factory, bargained, pushcart, goods, ice, shoes, Hester Street, put makeup on, threw away wig, and you learned new languages. Now you speak everything. Lady, but part of you is earth. Part of you is wounds, part of you is words, and part is smoke. Because whoever was burned over there, you were burned. You died forever with the sheep. Whoever survived, you speak in our tongues. Open your wings, instruct us. Say what we are, do not confuse us with the Sanhedrin of the loudspeakers who have no ear for your voice. But we who thirst for your new instructions, source of life, come into our thoughts, our mouth. Speak to us, voice of the beloved. Help us. Say what we are. Say what we are to do. Anybody want to say anything about this poem? Uh, it really resonates with me. Uh, I look at it, I, I see my parents, I see, I'm an immigrant, I'm first, I'm not even first generation. And, uh, you know, when it's like, you, you, were an you were part of the old country and you were that person. And I just remember when we left Romania, I was in, I think, Belgium. I saw a woman wearing pants, and it was the most shocking thing. In the world. I was four years old. I couldn't. It, it was as if you brought me to another to to Mars, and you adjust and you adjust again. We went to Israel and we adjusted to something completely different. We came to the states and we adjusted to something, and it's like it's the, it's that one tough cookie, but at the back of it, you what what you see is the evolution that had to be. 
but you're no different. Everything, everything comes with you. That you know, all the dead people, uh, everything yeah. comes comes with you. And it, it's she really she nailed it. Thanks for leaving that. Confuse us with the Sanhedrin of the loudspeakers. Yeah. Isn't that great? Hmm. Like, what is it? What's the? It's the court. Yeah, it's the seventy-two elders. elders. But what does that mean? The Sanhedrin of the loudspeakers. Yeah, that's. <laughs> it's them. It's the voice that we keep hearing. That's the the, the, the that we're supposed to. This is the rules. And this is yeah. Yes, thank you. And then that this is something different. I mean, she's something different. Hmm. But don't, don't confuse us. Us meaning the, 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 the people. Tribe? Don't confuse us, the people, with the people, the political people. The people in charge, is that what that means? The oppressors. Maybe don't let the external noise mm -hmm. confuse mm -hmm. your that piece that Marlena spoke yeah. about, that, yeah. that your internal context. Mm -hmm. yeah. Well, then to me, there's, there's always the, like the fight that the governments are having, and, and all of the political powers are yelling at each other, and then there are the human beings who get trampled by the, the political mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's interesting because the Sanhedrin is us, mm -hmm. too. Right. And it's the Jewish court. Mm -hmm. So it's part of us that is the authority loudspeaker that we don't. I mean, we hear it, but we can't block out the quiet voice inside, too. Mm -hmm. That's a little crazy. I think partly, you know, Alicia's feminist critique is coming through here. But I think she's also being a, you know, an artist here. She's saying, don't listen to the voices who tell you who I am. Mm -hmm. right? Don't listen to the people who say that they know right, what I want Right, you have to you have to discover that for yourself, you know. Or and this monolithic yeah. character, you know, that we're people who all have our own stories and have our own, you know, history and our own, you know, that we're not this monolithic. That's how I took it. Like right. We're not, that, you know, the authority, but not that. You know, we're we're real. We're deep. We're eternal. We're <coughs> right. Right. I love the practicality of it. I love the nitty-gritty of it. You know, we're like, yeah, you know, we're like doing these tasks. You know, we're carrying pots and pans, and we're do, and we're doing great. You know, we're doing these adventures, and we're doing. It's like so. Yeah, I know, love the image of the Shekhinah bargaining shoes. You know, it's, it's just a great <laughs> image. Yeah, exactly. But that's exactly, you know, she really captures in some ways that you know what the Kabbalah says about the Shekhinah is that that's the part of God that's closest to the world. So if it's close to the world, it means close to Hester Street. You know, like that, you know, there's a... Lady. Yeah. <laughs> right? <laughs> hey, lady, right? Exactly. Well, so beautiful. Yeah, yeah. you did, Arthur. Myself, Thank you. I didn't catch... I mean, the way you read it was just, I think, like she meant to write it. So mm. thanks. Well, tell her mother. Yeah. And thrive and yeah. flourish yeah. and learn languages. And, yeah. 
Absolutely. And yet she doesn't shut out what's happening over there, right? It's not a, you know, oh, well, you know, we're going to buy into the progress and we're going to forget about, you know, all that horrible stuff. You know, she actually says that's, that, that's part of her also, right? It's not a, she's not just about the, you know, the plucky greenhorn, right? She also is with the, you know, the people who didn't get to be the plucky greenhorns. Um, and, you know, and I find that powerful, too, you know, that she's with all of them. Okay. Hmm? I'm, no, I'm just that, that word Sanhedrin. That's like really. Yeah. Well, she's a bit of an antinomian, and she's playing her hand there. I mean, you can see it, but she's she at least she's not fond of people who tell her what to do. You know, <laughs> um, she's she's not fond of religious authority, which is probably true. Was she the poet who read? I think it probably was her, actually, though. I don't know. I must have been out with Raya. That's why I don't remember. Um, yeah, I think it was her. Yeah, yeah. Cool. I don't remember that either. All right, guys. Um, I would love to reminisce about Alicia with you. Um, but we only have 15 more minutes, and uh, I want to uh, I want to bring this home a little bit. I'm I'm not I'm going to lead a meditation. But what what's right, the so that, yeah. Can you just tell us what reading we should be doing for next week? Uh, I'd rather do this first and then tell us at the end if that's okay with you. So if your eyes are not already closed. <laughs> yes, of course. That's a good idea, Judith. I invite you to close your eyes. And just take a moment to be with the breath. you just want to notice a feeling or a sensation or a memory that's happening for you right now. Breathe into it. I invite you to come here and now. And if it helps you go on this journey, you might want to open your eyes just a tiny little bit and focus on one of the objects that's on the altar. Or even on the square itself. And use it as a kind of portal so that as you breathe, on your next breath, imagine that you're traveling in your mind or your spirit toward whatever it is that you're looking at. And traveling toward it until you go through it. And when you go through it, close your eyes again. 
you're going to find yourself on a mountain. On the mountain is overlooking a ruin. Might be a place you know or a place you've never been. A building, a city. Walk toward it and begin walking through this ruin. And notice what you're seeing. Maybe the stone, the earth, the plants that have grown up. Sensing whatever it is you sense here. And at a certain point, you come to an open place within or near this ruin. And in, in the open place, there's a flower. And you walk over to the flower, and you lean down to look at it, maybe to smell it. And you hear a sound. Maybe it's weeping. Maybe it's words. Maybe it's something else. And it's almost as if you're being embraced with invisible arms. As you look at this flower growing among this ruin, you hear the spirit of this place whispering to you. Maybe words of comfort maybe advice for the future. And then the whispering dies away and you just feel the embrace. And you're still looking at the flower. And as you watch, the flower begins to dry and shrivel and the petals blow away. And in the place of the flower is a seed. <coughs> Take the seed in your hand. And begin to walk with it. You're looking for a place to plant the seed. You'll know when you find the right place. And 
when you find the right place, plant the seed, dig a hole, put in the seed, cover it with earth, and step back <coughs> and watch to see what it grows. Just be with this place and witness whatever new thing grows from the seed. it grows, you look around and notice the ruin again and see if anything is different now than it was before. And whether in some way this ruin has also grown. And when the seed has reached its full growth. You can feel again for a moment the presence standing with you now that was standing with you before and feel its embrace. As you look at the tikkun, at the restoration of this place. And when you're ready, you can begin to walk back through the ruin toward the empty place on the mountain where you began. And when you reach it, you can open your eyes just a little and look at the object or place where you began your meditation and just feel as if you're coming right back through it and into this room. And when you feel ready, taking a few more breaths, Bring yourself fully here and now. You can open your eyes. in just a few minutes, but if anybody has anything brief that they want to share that they saw or that they learned, <coughs> we don't have time to share whole meditations, but if there's an image you can pluck or a word or a thought, maybe we can close our sacred circle with that.
<laughs> and I don't know if it had to do with the destruction. <laughs> That's funny. Well, Stanley was kind of like the knuckle. It could have been sadly. It just sort of kept coming. Okay. We'll work with it. I had, um, uh, I think maybe some, well, it's definitely symbolic of my situation that I'm going through right now, but also, um, of our, what we talked about was when you asked us to take the seed, I didn't plant it in the ground, I consumed it. Mm. That wherever I would go, it would be inside me, mm. and wow. that I wow. would actually shit it out mm. and plant it wherever I went. Mm. That, that, that the seed from, the, from this flower would be where I went. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So almost a, like you were saying about the temple being. That's that's quite a that's quite a great image to uh, for us to think about. Thank you. All right. What is gone? We build upon. What is gone? going to read um, the Shekhinah, uh, <coughs> this is going to be fun, the Shekhinah as daughter, as divine daughter. So we're going to be reading texts from early Jewish mysticism on the Shekhinah as God's daughter, as the princess, um, and uh, the relationship between the king and the princess. Uh, so uh, this will be a, a fun Jewish fairy tale uh, <laughs> session. Yeah.